Dotnet Rocks episode 792 with guest Jason Zander. Recorded live Friday, July 27th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. We're here for the next hour. Jason Zander is coming up in just a minute. But first, I want to say hi to my friend Richard. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Howdy, howdy. How's Vancouver today? It's great. I got to tell you this. You'll really enjoy this. So what happens when a programmer writes a really great piece of code? Like they, they knock out something that's awesome. Well, they want to talk about it. And of course, they don't have anybody next door to talk about they it. They get really excited about it. Now, you know what my wife does for a living. Yeah. You know, she's in the clothing business and she does a very technical part of, a cl- of clothing, making right. the sizing all work. That's right. So in the break today between our shows, I get up. She's totally stoked because she had knocked out, spent two or three days figuring out the algorithms to have this custom fit jeans automatically sized to all these different sizes. Whoa. So it's hard work and it's, it's so much like programming them. Her reaction, oh, I got it right. Look at this. Look at this. And she's <laughs> showing me stuff. I don't understand it all. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but she's clearly stoked about it. Like, she's nailed it. That's real math, too. It's it's very mathematical. It's completely algorithmic. It is as complex as anything you've ever done. One of my favorite lines of yours is that uh, you say, I'm a software engineer. My wife is a um, – what, what what's the joke that you say? What uh, is- I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a software developer. She's an industrial engineer. When we argue, it involves a spreadsheet. <laughs> All right, better know framework. Hit me. <laughs> so, what do you got? Um, I did a search today for CodePlex and then the phrase can't live without. Oh. Just to see what people are excited about. And I found this really cool tool for Windows uh, users and anybody who does any kind of work with graphics on Windows. Ruler.codeplex.com. That's right. It's a transparent ruler that stays on top. Goes vertical or horizontal, tells you how many pixels something is. Just wow. hold it up to what you want to measure. That's it. It's simple and it works. It, it's just a UI thing. It's just a little UI ruler you can drag around all over the place. That is too funny. What a great idea. Where That's has this awesome. been all my life? This is what I'm saying. Can't, <laughs> can't live without it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, ruler.codeplex.com. There you go. So, um, you know, from time to time, we, we mentioned that we had a question from Twitter and every once in a while we'll get somebody who sends us an email, you know, how do I know? So if you follow us, I'm Carl Franklin and Richard is Rich Campbell. We put out tweets every time that we're recording a show and who we're going to be talking to. And today is no exception. So if you want to get in on the conversation, that's how to do it. And we do our best to try and answer the questions as they come in. Uh, not all of them are going to get to the guests. Sometimes the timing's out. We do the best we can. But it, Twitter's so much fun for that sort of thing. So. Mostly right now we record on Thursday and Friday afternoons and morning specific time. Yeah. But uh, that may be subject to change. All right. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment. I was looking for something in lieu of our guest. Uh, grabbed a comment around .NET 4.5, and I found a great one on show 772. That was the show we did with Dominic Beyer yeah. about identity in 4.5. And it, you got to agree with me on this. Dominic explains claim-based security better than anybody. That was awesome. And it's the first person I've seen super excited about it, too. Yeah. Like, just stoked about the technology. He, he absolutely pinches. And uh, Jeff Dalton's comment goes like this. Uh, Great show. This past year, I've seen firsthand that one of the biggest problems with enterprise web applications is the lack of consistency with claims-based identity and access control. We did a quick study and found over a dozen different ways our web applications were gathering identity information for system users. The reason is because we wanted to replace on all the systems of record and found that we would have to keep it propped up or break a lot of different technologies. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that the standards and techniques for doing claims identity are getting better. I would love to hear more about claims-based security on future shows, and perhaps the topic would be interesting for the tablet show, too. Nice. Yeah, tablets and claims-based security. This is a big deal. I've been doing some architectural reviews the past couple of months, and this topic comes up over and over and over again. You wouldn't think it, but it's happening. And 
it's exciting to me that Microsoft internally is starting to implement claims-based security in their products. SharePoint's got it. Exchange has got it. Like, it's starting to spread. So yeah. uh, there's clearly going to be more and more tooling. You know, as, as Microsoft eats their dog food on these technologies, they get better for us as developers, well, too. Well, I, I think what's happening is what happened to us when we were talking to Dominic, which was we realized this is a tool for enforcing rules. Yeah. For enforcing business rules. It's not necessarily, okay, you are who you say you are. Okay, then what? Yeah, I mean, the, these are rules. These are essential. It's essentially a business logic framework. Yep. And that, that was the revelation for me anyway. For sure. So I think that's ha- that's what's happening. So Jeff, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online, over 250 hardcore training courses for developers, by industry experts and MVPs. Some of the people that appear on this show, for example, they release 12 to 15 new courses every month. They have a free 10-day, 200-minute trial with access to their library, including uh, coverage of Agile, Scrum, TDD, Source Control, TFS. You name it, they've got it. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month. Pluralsight.com. And with that, let me introduce Jason Zander. Jason is the corporate vice president of the Visual Studio team in the DevDiv developer division at Microsoft. Jason's team responsibilities include the Visual Studio project line of Express, Professional, Premium, and Ultimate, covering a range of technologies from programming languages, JavaScript runtime and tools, IDE and ecosystem, Office and SharePoint tooling, cloud tooling, source control work item tracking, and advanced architecture developer and testing tools. <gasps> As one of the original developers of the CLR, Jason's primary technical area of contributions include file formats, metadata, compilers, debugging and profiling, and integration of the system into key platforms, including operating systems and databases. Needless to say, this is the guy. Welcome to the show, Jason. Hey, thanks for having me here. Nice to see you guys. Uh, it's great to have you. And of course, we're here to talk about Visual Studio 2013. 2013 or 2010? 2010. 20, yeah. 2011. What the heck number is it anyway? It was Visual Studio, Studio 11. 12. Yeah. All right. Let me say that again, because we right. just did something on SharePoint 2013. That's why I've got it on That's my right. Brain. They're after us. And we're here, of course, to talk about Visual Studio 2012. And this is one of those landmark .NET Rock shows that we get to do every once in a while that feels a little more official than some of the other shows that we do, Richard, wouldn't you say? I agree. But you know what I love? I love a VP who's got code that we run today. It's great. Can you resist that? No. So are your bytes still in the CLR, Jason? Uh, yes, they are. I've got uh, I've got some code way back when from Control Alt Delete, and I've got some code uh, in bootstrapping inside of the CLR. Uh, as far as I know, it's still there. So awesome! That's so great. Well, thank you because it's just a wonderful library, and it's obviously, made me an awful lot of money. I really appreciate yeah. that. We wouldn't be here without <laughs> Happy it. To oblige, any way I can help, <laughs> I'm here to add value. So by the time this is uh, released, this this show. We have already launched Visual Studio, and uh, tell us what we can expect as developers of, you know, as users of Visual Studio 2010. What's the, if if you're in an elevator and somebody says, "So, what's the big deal about Visual Studio 2012?" What would you tell them? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a huge release for us. So we're going to be releasing Visual Studio 2012. Uh, we also have .NET Framework 4.5 that are coming out. Um, you know, in, in various releases, we may move parts of the stack and not others. Uh, this is another one of those big landmark releases. Uh, new CLR, new framework, uh, new set of tools. And the tools is brand new all the way from the Express queues up through Ultimate and Team Foundation Server and Service. Wow. So it's a huge, huge release. I can literally spend like hours going through content and that kind of stuff. But yeah. I think, you know, if, if you're a framework developer, if you're, uh, you know, into uh, doing Agile and Scrum and kind of modern, you know, techniques and you're thinking about the cloud, mm. Office, you know, Azure, I mean, there's a little bit in here for everybody to love. Now, the thing that I, the thing that I pick up right away is you said there's a new CLR. And, and when I, when there's a new CLR, that means changes, possible incompatibilities. What, what is it that, um, is necessary to change that requires a new CLR? 
Well, when we do a new CLR, it generally will come with a bunch of new, you know, changes, fixes, functionality inside of things like the garbage collector. We will do some stuff inside of code generations through the JIT compilers and that sort of thing. Uh, and then you get up higher into things like the base class libraries where we'll introduce new ones and changes. And, you know, some of those are a little bit easier to absorb than just new APIs. And it depends on what you're pulling in. But, you know, if we change the JIT compiler and the GC, you know, one of the things that you as a developer, when's the last time you had to worry about if an if statement branched correctly? Yeah, exactly. You don't have to do that because we do that. Right. You know, and it turns out our test team does run into those cases, right? So that's part of the testing. But the good thing I will tell you is compatibility is hugely important to us. And so we spend a significant amount of time on compat for big releases like this, uh, including, you know, getting help from our early adopters and actually running things in production. Uh, we have major, uh, major Microsoft properties, online properties uh, that you may recognize uh, mm-hmm. for searching and other sort of stuff that are actually running these new versions of the framework already. Uh, it's all part of our, you know, compatibility, our testing, our robustness, capacity, you know, all that sort of testing that goes into something as core uh, as the CLR. Now, now, there's one real issue that I need to ask you about, and that is that the versioning numbers are the same, or at least they were planning to be when they first came out for .NET 4 and .NET 4.5. Is that still the case? That is the case, and so this is what we call an in-place update. What that means is that we will lay down the new bits, you will get the new functionality, and uh, but it does contain a number of this other functionality that, that I'm talking about, so a bunch of brand new features and things like that. Again, designed to be compatible, so yeah. you're not going to land with a new side-by-side framework or directory or something to go bind to, but you will get the new functionality. Now, is, don't we, I mean, that is great for compatibility, but if we want to know whether we're running uh, you know, four five or four zero. How how can we tell? And do we need to tell? Well, you know, the design that we're coming up with is designed so you shouldn't need to worry about such things. I mean, like you, you basically we need to be backwards compatible. Now, yeah. uh, I've written tons of codes. I've been at Microsoft for twenty years, so I I know what it's like. You know, when you get a new version of Windows, it's mm-hmm. supposed to be the same. Um, so I'm not being Pollyanna, of course, no, you, know, sure. you, you, you will see things. But you can use the normal adaptive techniques that you got. New APIs will show up. You can bind to them. And you know, we are giving you the ability at the framework level to go pick those out. And we do have, you know, lower level uh, API functionality for loading and hosting and that kind of stuff. It does give you the data required if you need to go program against it. Uh, our design goal is that, you know, for the 99% of applications that are out there, that should actually not be necessary just right. because if it's an existing app and you're pulling it forward, we need to make sure that it goes. And we want the testing, you know, compatibility layers to, to, to be there as part of that. Uh, and of course, we're committed to if you find issues, you should let us know and we'll, we'll go in and go fix them and, you know, that software. Do you think that we'll ever run into the issue where somebody has .NET 4.0 installed and my, uh, my code is written against 4.5? And it's allowed to run on 4.0 until I make a call into 4.5 that isn't in 4.0, and then it bonks. Yeah, no, we, we, so this is, you know, as with the CRT, you know, .NET and the rest of these sorts of things, you definitely need to make sure that your code is set up and, and provisioned, you know, correctly. Uh, we do take, you know, versioning, uh, binding, uh, timestamps, all the rest of that kind of stuff when we actually do the compilation on the code and those sorts of things. Yeah. In fact, there is actually features that are built in so that, uh, from a forward compatibility perspective, if you launch an application that doesn't match the version that you have, there are actually some on-demand features that will prompt a user and say, hey, I detect that you don't have the right version. Would you like me to go install that? Uh, so, and that's actually the case like in the new version of Windows and those sort of things as well. So the OS will know the difference, but you as a developer won't know the difference. You, you, I mean, you can program against it, but if you need to have it provisioned in the first place, then oftentimes what we'll do is put these shims for loading in there so mm-hmm. they can go off and go pick it and help you do the provisioning. Now, for most cases, you're going to handle this through things like if you're in the enterprise, you're going to use group policy. Yeah. Right? You'll, you'll go ahead and roll out the new framework as part of rolling out the new application. Sure. If you're writing a normal setup, you know, click once style, you know, you're going to put the same sort of things in there as well. Yeah. So I think in practice, this kind of stuff is usually just part of your, your provisioning scheme. Sure. Now, uh, the, also, in, in Visual Studio 2012, 
uh, even though we have the new framework available, we still have multi-targeting for your project. In fact, we have round-tripping on your projects, too. And that means that if you've got a .NET Framework 4.0 application, you can safely open it in 2012, do a whole bunch of edits and changes. You're still bound to the 4.0 framework. Yeah. We're not going to automatically re, re, you know, rebind you. Yeah. Uh, and, in fact, the project files themselves are backwards compatible with a 2010 Visual Studio, which means okay. you can even work in a split team if you need to. That's good. So after I've touched it with 2012, a guy with 2010 can still open it up and it's not going to have any problems. That's correct. That was one of the biggest feature requests that we got actually around rolling out new versions because it's the, you know, you want to try it out and uh, try out the new stuff. There's cool new designer and that kind of thing. And yet if we converted your project, that means the people down the hallway all had to move at the same time. Uh, and in some cases, it's either it's an early adoption thing, less of a problem now that we've got the product out there. Yeah. But, you know, it might also be that you're working in a, like a contract environment for a customer. And yeah, that's what I was thinking. Development team isn't there, that kind of thing. And they're not using any kind of source control. Because obviously, if you have source control, you can roll it back. Yeah, you can. You know, but this gives you the nice bit of both worlds. Because if we do have like a cool new designer feature or something, or better, you know, debugger integration, take your pick. You can pick the new tools, work on the project. Maybe your customer hasn't rolled forward to 2012 yet, uh, but you can still go ahead and use it, and it's still going to be compatible. Should we talk about the UI? Because that seems to be the most contentious issue right now around Studio Why are you shouting at me? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've heard some feedback. And the grays. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, so the UI is a, is a, is a, like, I can give you kind of, uh, the example of how I think about it. Let me just start there and then sure. uh, we can clarify accordingly. Uh, we got, you know, kind of three pieces of feedback. Um, and I'd start off by saying, and there's a lot of good blog posts. I think everybody's kind of have read them around what our goals were. The goals going into the beta, uh, which remained the same through the end, was to try and help you concentrate and focus on the core things. Here's my code. Here's my designer. You know, that sort of thing. And that's why you saw, some of the elements around it start to be minimalized so mm-hmm. that it wouldn't be as distracting. Okay, that's a design goal. Uh, I think the other thing we kind of cryptically talked about at the time was, you know, we were modernizing the look and feel and going more towards a common visual language from Microsoft. Now, that was before the new interface from Office had come out, so we couldn't really explain what we meant. But I think now that perhaps people have seen the preview of the next version of Office, mm-hmm. you'll see remarkable, you know, uh, and striking comparisons between the two, and that's no accident. We actually were working mm-hmm. together. Uh, and so the big three pieces of feedback we got on the UI, first one was around contrast. There wasn't enough contrast. It was hard to kind of pick things out. This is things like menus that weren't active versus were, and, you know, call stacks and stuff like that. The next one was colors and icons, and the last one was the topography. Uh, and in that case, I mean both the kind of all caps versus camel casing, you know, the upper and lower casing, in addition to how it was packed together and truncated in certain views. So we took all that feedback and actually did a bunch of factoring into the release candidate and then through the final release where we did add a bunch more to the colors of the icons, but we didn't just revert to the old ones. We tried to make this a, a good comp- you know, kind of combination between those goals. Uh, we did add a lot more contrast in there, and then we actually did change a lot of typography. My favorite ones were things like Solution Explorer and some of the titles of the docking wells. Um, in all caps, when they got truncated, they were really hard to understand what it was, and those are fixed. Um, the only thing we have left, really, in all caps, is the, the kind of uh, the menu system mm-hmm. at the top. Uh, and again, I think if you actually look at the new version of Office, this version of Visual Studio, you actually start seeing a set of desktop applications from Microsoft that have a lot in common with respect to the visual language and what it looks like. So I've gotten you know really good feedback, you know, on that version and how it's kind of uh, how it's kind of landed. Um, and the final thing I'd say on this one, it's it's kind of interesting. I went back to my blog post on the new 2010 UI. Uh, there was a lot of feedback on the new 2010 yeah. UI as well. Well, there's part and, of me that wondered if this was sort of like that Facebook phenomenon, where every time you make any change, everybody screams, yeah. and then three months later, they forget. What change? Well, and then the, the ironic part is you come back, and then later people say, hey, why don't you just bring back that beautiful 2010 interface? Yeah. When the original feedback was, why are you screwing up the 2008 interface? I mean, so, <laughs> you know, right. she gets some of this irony. To, to me, the, the, you know, the, we want to take all the feedback in there, and then I think the thing for people to look through, and if you look through the comment streams, you'll actually see this. There are sometimes no two people that, app, you know, that agree. You'll, you will wind up with polar opposites. Some people absolutely love the original API, and a lot of other people said, nope, I didn't. 
hidden. So sometimes it's not necessarily a perfect answer. So what we tried to do was go through and preserve the original goals. But I actually do like, you know, the kind of improved use of color. Uh, the, the one that really resonated with me with the feedback that people gave was, hey, when I look in this solution explorer, I want an easy way to pick out my types of files because my eye is drawn to that and it is part of my workflow. I was like, oh, okay, great. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, I can totally see that with me as a developer. So putting a little bit more sprinkle of color on my C Sharp or VB file icon, for example, that was very helpful. So that's an example where it's like, it's not so much a subjective, do you like it, don't you like it? That's an opinion. It's more like, what were you trying to do, and how would the use of color or some other artifact actually help you accomplish that task? That's a, that's an impactful thing, and we tried to look for those and yeah. really take action on it. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that's that's really what what we've been talking about in terms of user design in the in the community for a long time in our apps, in our own apps, is using color and contrast to convey information and to make it easier to figure out what where things are and what to do, not necessarily because you like the color. Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Code. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how'd you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kit on the block, Just Code, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that Just Code is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where Just Code is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features Just Code offers and download a trial at Telerik.com slash JustCode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Well, where do we start? I mean, that Let's was... Let's start with Windows 8. I mean, I think it's it's still the big elephant in the room, right? I mean, so much of Studio 2012's experience has been tied to what's going to happen with Windows 8. Yeah, uh, the the Windows 8 release is a huge, huge release for us, um, and it, it's kind of cool. I mean, I've like I said, I've been at Microsoft for 20 years. You don't often get a chance to do, you know, kind of this sort of a groundbreaking, you know, brand new, you know, very effective across the industry experience. So it's been a really great experience and a great partnership between DevDiv and Windows as well, which has been awesome. Um, but you know, from a from a us from a planning perspective, uh, it's been front and center for the entire release. Uh, we've uh, used a significant portion of the team, uh, as you can imagine, in order to build the tooling. Uh, the nice part about Visual Studio is you kind of, in the .NET, you, you, you expect things to just work the way you're used to. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, hey, use your existing skill set in a new area, and it's not going to feel completely foreign to you. And so uh, that's a great promise to have. And so when you walk into the new tools, you do file a new project, you start, you know, dragging and drop and use expression blend, you build, you use the debugger, you know, like it all works the way you would expect it to work. Um, there's actually a significant amount of effort behind making each one of those go. Because, you know, just to share an example, um, we actually had to go through and figure out, well, what the heck are these templates? And this Metro UI, like, yeah. what's the markup? And mm-hmm. what is that? And then you get a little further along, and it's like, okay, there's a new compilation model here because there's this WinRT thing. And how do you compile for that? Because it's, it's, it's a different environment. Uh, all the way down to, like, let's take the debugger. Uh, there's a whole new PLM system in there, process lifecycle management. So mm-hmm. when are apps created, destroyed, you know, uh, basically hibernate, I mean, like, all these sorts of things. And by the way, the debugger needs some APIs to be able to actually attack to it, and then, oh, by the way, when you build this thing, it's not going through the store because I want to debug locally. So what's the license that allows a developer to, you see what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's the effort that goes through. Our hope is if we've done this right, as a developer, it just looks so simple. File a new project, pick that template, Control-Shift-B, it builds, hit F5, look, my app's up and running. Nice. Um, but, you know, there's all those other details in there behind across dozens of teams to get it right. So it's a big release. And there's just so much to talk about and probably a lot that people know already. Um, one of the things that I'm really interested in is how the developer division worked with the Windows team because you guys really had to play together in the same sandbox this time. Um, you know, so much of WinRT, well, so much of the Windows 8.NET experience is pushed into WinRT or Windows Runtime. 
And um, then there's the the .NET 4 or 5 framework that we use in the desktop mode. Uh, that, was that a challenge to coordinate those two teams together to uh, to play nice? Yeah, I think anytime you try and get two big groups of over a thousand people and engineers with strong opinions, um, <laughs> there's going to be some challenges. Yeah. Um, but what I would tell you is it was actually fantastic. Um, I actually, I've, I've worked a lot with Windows. I've done a whole bunch, and we've been you know shipping .NET Framework with Windows for a long time, so I've got a lot of experience doing that. Uh, this was a really great release. It was a very collaborative release uh, in that uh, there was a lot of sharing of responsibilities uh, back and forth across the teams. Um, and so, for example, like you talk about the frameworks and the frameworks design, uh, we did try and bring all of our experience of having shipped multiple versions of a very popular ops-oriented framework. You know, what would that look like? But we also brought, you know, multiple assets. We've talked a lot about .NET, you know, obviously the show and, and that kind of stuff. Hmm. But we also had to do JavaScript, and we also do the C++ runtime. Right. And so we did lots of conversations. In fact, it reminded me a little bit more when we started of the conversations we had when we created the, the CLS, the Common Language Subset. Hmm. We originally created the CLR, and we had all sorts of differences between programming languages and runtimes, the frameworks and the environments. And we had to figure out compromises and ways to make all this stuff work. And this experience was very similar to that. So there's a lot of good back and forth yeah. on the metadata designs, compiler designs, licensing. Uh, and like I said, and along the way, when we needed APIs, we got Windows to be able to do those. And you know, so it was actually a, a very good experience, I think, for both teams. I can imagine sitting in some of those meetings and, you know, the the, the Windows uh, team on one side and the developer team on the other side. And, oh, no, that's going in this side. You know, no, that's going to go on this side. Well, wait a minute. Maybe if we meet in the middle, you know, just yeah. kind of crazy cr- uh, conversations like that. Yeah, I'll give you good examples. Uh, some of the early debates we had were around things like asynchronous patterns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, where should they be? I mean, is, is it something where the API supports it intrinsically, or is it a, a compiler kind of runtime, you know, wrapper on top? It's more of a programmer sort of thing. Uh, and there are differences in how the behavior works and how the types are resolved and how the runtimes deal with them. And so we would talk about those sorts of scenarios as to where these things should land. And then ultimately, the good news is, you know, we're all engineers. Uh, and so in the end, we're looking for a well-designed product. And we want it to work well for you know our mutual users, and you know so it, yeah we had some uh, interesting yeah. debates. Um, engineers do that, uh, but it was actually uh, you know pretty good. At the end of the day, I think uh, I think we landed with a good set of uh, of designs. I'm pretty happy with it. I just would have loved to have been in on some of those conversations because that's where the real drama of you know pro- working at Microsoft probably is for a guy like you. Oh you yeah, know, it's great. Yeah, no, there's, no, there's nothing funner than debating. You know, should we make changes to the programming language? How compatible is it with existing stuff that we have? And, you know, kind of modern development techniques and a new platform that's yeah. going to last for 20 years. I mean, like, like those were some of the funnest, uh, funnest arm wrestling contests that we had. I bet. Is that the, we're about to make decisions here that will have consequences for us for the next 20 years. No, that's right. That's the, that's the big kind of responsibility that comes with this. It's, you can't just hack stuff together, you know, for the most popular operating system out there. Uh, you, we want to make sure you do an exceptionally good job. And I think a lot of us have had a lot of experience where we didn't get it quite right. And that's, that's why we have a whole bunch of EX and EX2 APIs, you know, and, you know, that kind of stuff. So you try and bring that experience in so you can get it right the first time. Uh, knowing that you can never be perfect, but, you know, you, you basically try and do your best. Well, it, uh, you know, because with the operating system shift, there's some real different development models or, or application execution models inside of WinRT. It's in a much tighter process space. There's stuff I was used to having in the .NET framework, which is really now in the kernel. Like, how did that get reconciled? It, it was the, the OS guys coming with this model and we had to figure out how to work with .NET in it? Or, you know, whose idea was that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this comes from what the platform requirements look like. And, and actually, if, if, if people, you know, a good refresher, uh, is from the build conference from last year. I think it was the second foundational session that Alesh Holacek, um, did. And he's, uh, Alesh is one of our primary drivers and partners on the Windows side, where he talked about exactly the platform requirements. Mm-hmm. And some of this had to do with, you know, clean installation, secure by default, you know, these sorts of things. And that oftentimes means minimizing surface area. And you intersect that with the new kind of look and feel, touch enabled, you know, those sorts of things together. That kind of laid down the foundation for the system you want to go build. And now you could then go back and say, well, those are all, you know, it's hard to argue with these attributes, right? I mean, sure. a nice, clean installation, you know, secure application 
patience. You don't have to worry about, you know, all the, these are really great attributes for a platform to have. It's what you want. And so then the conversation turned more into, okay, but we also want to provide maximum access for our development base. We want to make sure they have a first-class experience. We want to make sure things are composable, like mixing .NET with C++ or JavaScript with C++. Yeah. And now you can start having the conversations that say, well, here's kind of the cone of light that comes down from the platform decisions. Here's what's in or out. Uh, and then you start having a lot of you know, good engineering and debates and that kind of stuff. I, well, the big one for me, I think the C++ XAML combination is awesome. And that we're going to be blindsided by a whole bunch of C++ boys that we didn't know could build apps. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, XAML is a really, you know, it's a very powerful markup language, right? I mean, and so being able to, you know, we have, we have a ton of C++ programmers out there with skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're going to be pretty excited about, you know, because you know, I've written a bunch of GDI user Win32, you know, I've probably written, you know, 10 times more C++ in my own career as a developer than I have any other language. Sure. I've written a bunch of that. Um, it's just so much better getting a nice flow-based layout content, you know, uh, that kind of a system there. You can start doing some pretty amazing things. And I moved from, like, custom grid controls I wrote 18 years ago to, like, no, don't bother with that stuff. It, it's built in. Just, you know, and it's amazing what you can and then start to accomplish. And so I think we're about to see some pretty fantastic applications, and it's going to unlock another segment of developers that you know, maybe weren't uh, you know, kind of exercising those sorts of muscles yet. I just find it fascinating to try and sort of create this level playing field between the C-sharp XAML, C++ XAML, and then you've got HTML5, WinJS. Yep. Yeah. They're all talking to the same chunks of the framework. Yeah, so the way the way you approach that, because um, you know, this is actually a big chunk of my job the last two years, has been uh, you know kind of making sure we could land Win Eight in a good way. Mm-hmm. So we actually went through and you know kind of I, I usually start these things out by thinking like what are the logical steps a developer is going to go through all of them right acquire the tools build the project compile debug all the obvious stuff all the way out to though I actually now want to deploy to the store and I need to get telemetry back on the other end like what does that look like mm-hmm. so we did you know kind of storyboard that out and trying to figure out what should that look like and then we actually had scenario teams that would subdivide in their areas so one doing the CLR version one doing the C++ one doing the, the JavaScript tooling, but in all cases, like we were doing joint design reviews, and we were doing, you know, joint kind of, you know, uh, scenarios and scenario testing, and really trying to make sure that it really was a good experience, and what would happen is one team may have come up with a really cool innovation. Uh, The first thing we do is share with the other scenario teams and try and see, well, can we get the same thing? And, you know, of course, as long as it made sense for the particular technology. Sure. But I think the results are you get a pretty good, consistent way to be able to write all that code, no matter what skill set you bring to the table. Because this was a big thing. We want to invite all comers. We're not, you know, it's not just for one particular type of programming skills. You know, it doesn't really matter which ones you have. Come on board. Right. Uh, we want you to have a great experience. The battle, to me, has got to be, does it go into the kernel? Does it go yeah. into the framework? Does it go into the language? Yeah. Hey, Richard. Hey, buddy. Guess what time it is? Must be that happy time again. Well, it's a happy time times two Ooh. today because we're giving away two prizes. Awesome. The first is a, a special giveaway by Xamarin, the company that's turning .NET developers into native mobile developers virtually overnight. One lucky winner will receive Xamarin's professional products that let you build native apps for iOS and Android using C Sharp and the .NET base class library. It's an $800 value. Cool. And today's winner of that is... Aaron Werglund. Ah, congratulations, Aaron. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Aaron. A nice Xamarin suite of software. Yeah, and if you are a .NET developer looking to build native apps for iPhone, iPad, and Android devices, look no further, because Xamarin has brought the .NET platform to iOS and Android. You get all the power and performance of each platform, including native UI toolkits and complete API access, and yet still develop with the elegance of C Sharp and the versatility of the .NET base class library. Think iPad development with Link. Yes. Say no more. One of the most powerful features of Xamarin is that you can utilize existing C-sharp code and also incorporate third-party libraries, a huge jumpstart to your app development, and you can share non-UI code across iOS, Android, and Windows phone apps and achieve mobile app nirvana. So listeners to this program 
can get 25% off Xamarin software packages if you head over to xamarin.com slash .NET rocks, and that's X-A-M-A-R-I-N dot com slash D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S. And we'll put a link into the show for that. Yes, and you can download MonoTouch for iOS and Mono for Android for free. So join over 155,000 other .NET developers who are adding mobile developer to their resume. And check out the Tablet Show. We've done a number of shows with Miguel Diacaza and uh, Matt Friedman talking about Xamarin and all the cool technology over there. Yep. And our second winner today gets a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. That's everything they do minus a few support options. Cool. But everything is in there, and there is support included. Uh, this is a huge value, and of course, we're giving away one of these every show. Today's winner of that is Tim Barber from the UK. Oh, congratulations, Tim. Congrats. The Telerik Suite. Yeah, the big one. And uh, speaking of big stuff, if you don't know what we're talking about, every year we give away $5,000 worth of technology, which is coming up in December. And uh, you can get in on it, too. Not a, not to mention the giveaways we do in every show. Just go to .netrocks.com and click on the big Get Free Stuff button and uh, sign up. It only takes a minute. It's free, and you could win big stuff. Do you remember that point when uh, the idea of projections were... Uh, floated? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> that, yes. to me, would have been the aha moment. You yeah. Know? And this was kind of interesting because, like, the, the places where a lot of the stuff manifested on the compiler and runtime side definitely has a lot more to do with the types. And so, like, where's the type implemented? You know, is it above or below the line? Um, how does it interact with the other types that come through? How are you going to store the metadata for the format so that the other compilers can read it? Like, there was a, there was a period there where I did some, you know, hands-on testing, and I wrote a JavaScript version of an app, and calling into C++ was murder. You know what I mean? Like, so you, it's like, Guys, we got to we got to fix some of these things, right? So things like you know the projections, like I mentioned the asynchronous programming models, you know a bunch of those sort of patterns, we kind of had to sort those out, and we'd have long conversations with experts from all three teams in the room, you know, kind of just basically go through and ultimately hash it out. But the the part that was kind of cool about that is that didn't last forever. There were there were good conversations. They lasted about as long as they needed to, sometimes mm. two to three weeks, mm. and we'd make a call. And everyone would just go in and go get it implemented and just use the code and the coding experience. Um, you know, the other thing I, I would, you know, I do generally on every release is I generally every week, every two weeks, grab the, you know, the latest build of the product. I actually install it more frequently than that, but I will actually set aside some time and sit down and just basically start coding for, you know, hours and just go use it. And how does it work? Yeah. Am I happy with it? Do I like it? You know, that kind of stuff. And then we filter that kind of feedback. And then obviously we have early adopters and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. you know, and that whole cycle. And it's, uh, it's amazing that, uh, you know, I worked on the first version of the CLR and .NET. <laughs> uh, that was kind of a two and a half years to get it mostly running and another couple of years after that to get it all shipping. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done this entire thing, you know, basically in the last couple of years, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's amazing. But you are pro- building on a pretty solid foundation. Oh, absolutely. No, no question. No question. I mean, because a bunch of the stuff we the, took longer on the CLR is we were inventing stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, value, value types is, is GC embedded versus not. I mean, we had epic, epic battles, you know, way back when on that kind of stuff. And we didn't have to redo all of those. Right. right. And so yeah. we were able to pull, you know, the best of these environments. And, and so, yes, we definitely have fantastic foundations. I would say in all three, JavaScript, C++, and CLR. Should we talk a little bit about ARM? We hmm. certainly can, yeah. So, I, I mean, is this just going to be a switch that just like compile x86, compile 60, 64x, compile ARM? Um, you'll see all, yes, I mean, there, there's, so there's a combination. And actually, I did post a, maybe like a nine-minute video, actually, on nothing but ARM development, mm-hmm. um, using 2012 and kind of showing off some of these techniques. There's a lot more details there. But it, it comes down to the environment you're using. If you're uh, in JavaScript or the CLR, uh, those by definition have JIT compilers. Um, right. So they're, they're they're designed to be you know intermediate. 
format. In JavaScript, it's the syntax, uh, you know, the lexical scan. In CLR, it's the bytecode. Uh, and so for those, you can pretty much create a neutral image. And 2012, uh, Visual Studio 2012 will allow you to set the package type when you do the you know, packaging. And you can kind of say what you want specific for a particular chip or generic, and we'll, we'll just automatically you know, handle that. Uh, kind of the same way the CLR and JavaScript today work on 32 or 64-bit. Uh, you know, we just handle that for you. Um, so those work that way. So is, is there an any CPU that covers ARM? Yes, there is. Wow. Yeah, there's, there's, I think it's like neutral or something like that. So if you and you can actually find it in your package manifest settings. So if you do a right-click properties on your project, uh, and it's actually when you go off and go do the packaging port, you'll actually, and it, I've actually documented this on my blog, you, you can actually see the dialogue uh, that you pop up where you can actually select what you'd like to do. Um, so you can pick, you know, whatever you want. But otherwise, we'll, we'll give you the option. Of just, just run it everywhere, and I don't care. Jeez. I, my guess is for the vast majority of people, that's what you want. Um, you know, because if you're writing like a data snacking application, you know, something that pulls back a feed of data off a REST feed and displays it in a nice way or those sorts of things, uh, you know, that, that'll be about perfect for you. Um, for C++, just to complete the matrix, uh, C++ obviously compiles down to the CPU bytecodes. So for that, you will need to go ahead and do the multiple builds uh, in order to get the compiler to generate the right backend target. Um, but then on the packaging side, we'll also then help you out for packaging. Wow. Great news. Well, an interesting trick, I, I presume you're still recommending tests on every platform. I've certainly found whammies where we've you know, compiled as any, and then when you run it on a 64-bit machine, it, something breaks. Yeah, you absolutely want to still do your testing. You know, I think that the methodology that always works well for me is I do my primary development, you know, kind of usually on my main machine, my laptop, my desktop, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, that's often some kind of x86, you know, x64 variant sort of machine. Uh, and then, yeah, you do want to go do do the testing on the actual device itself. Uh, we've tried to make it um, as powerful as possible to do the main thing on your main machine. So, for example, the simulator that we put in with the debugger, and we've got a, a, an emulator for the phone as well, works mm-hmm. the same type of way. You can do things like simulate GPS, you can simulate screen sizes, you can see what layout and stuff would look like, and we can also help you simulate the accelerometer in some cases, so you can test out particular types of code. Now, if you wrote, say, like one of the, the like the Labyrinth app is an interesting one, you know, the one where you you balance a, a marble on a, on a tabletop with yeah. holes in it, that kind of yep. stuff. Um, we also set it up and we do all the testing so that if you have like an ARM tablet, for example, uh, you basically just connect between your debugging machine and the ARM tablet. And if I were debugging that same application, it's the same Visual Studio debugger, but now I could actually be using the accelerometer in the actual device, trying out whatever it looked like. But when my breakpoints hit, it's hitting on my main machine, same source code, same breakpoints. Um, I actually did a demo of this at TechEd where we showed this off, and it's also in the video. The cool thing is you never have to understand. But if you want to, this is the geeky part. This is your, your moment of geek. You can actually attach to that ARM tablet. You can actually go to the registers window. You'll see ARM registers. And if you right-click your code and go to disassembly, you will see the low-level instructions that are executing on that CPU. Wow. Huh. Nice. And are they just yeah. tethered together by a USB cable? Well, in, in this case, um, you can actually use Wi-Fi. No kidding. Wow. Yeah, you, you use Wi-Fi, hook it up. I mean, we did actually hand out uh, at the build conference, I believe, we handed out nice little uh, Ethernet dongles that would fit into the uh, the build tablets, oh. uh, the the developer preview kits that were that were sent out. So you just you just need to be wired up to the thing, yeah. And uh, you can just discover and attach to it, and well, uh, you're, you're you're good to go. I mean, the whole strength of tablet development it's a portable device, so have it sitting beside you when you work at your main workstation. And my workstation is enormous. Yeah, I could have the tablet sitting here and then do my build, and right away it's on the tablet. I play with it for a bit, and I can drop into a breakpoint, make a fix, keep going. That's magical. You know, you were talking, and Richard, you mentioned this, that sometimes when you compile for any CPU, I found that the problems with any CPU tended to be when I was using P-Invoke. And, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, but there's such a sandbox with Metro apps anyway. Yeah. Well, and the other one for me is database drivers. But again, we've been sandboxed away from those now. You can't do that anymore. Right. So I think that you're less likely to run into those bonks. This is just my gut feeling. Maybe you can talk about that, Jason. 
Yeah, that that is our hope. I mean, if if you think about what the runtimes themselves are doing, uh, we're basically going to do the same JIT compilation, uh, you know, for the rest of your code. It's our type system. It's all kind of lined up. Uh, you're correct. WinRT is nice and consistent between the platforms. And so, if we've done our job correctly, it's mostly just you know laying out the different object structures for the underlying CPU, and then doing the code generation that matches the underlying code. Uh, it is a different code generator, obviously, but that's why we do a significant amount of testing to make sure it's going to work correctly. Sure. So if, if you find a case where, you know, like, let me give you the example off of the framework. If you find a case where a peer-managed code application is running and we do this kind of any and you try it in both environments and it's a peer app, as you point out, not with PInvoke or that kind of thing, right. and that doesn't work, that's a bug. Okay, that's, that's cool to know. But I feel like suddenly any CPU is back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from my perspective, it never left. We tested that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. you know, like like you said, it's usually when you wind up with some kind of external dependency. So mm-hmm, PNVoke mm-hmm. is, is is probably the most common one. Obviously, the word sizes are different. You know, sometimes you get different API sets. The other one, of course, is the availability of, as you point out, drivers for third party components and what those look like. We can't call what doesn't exist. Well, but, yeah, the know, classic one is this is a sixty four bit data driver. Sixty four bit data driver is all different. It's just simply different. That's right. And that, and that's the other place where, you know, again, this to me is more of an architecture. Like, so that, that's the compatibility piece. Yeah. On the architecture side, you know, the, if you're writing for 64-bit and you're doing a data-intensive application, just because we can run it automatically for you doesn't mean that's going to yield the best results. Right. Because, like, in that case, you're probably running in the 64-bit box because you want to take advantage of maximum memory space, yep. virtual memory, paging, those sorts of things. And algorithms that you write that work in small spaces are not the most optimal when they start to explode orders of magnitude larger. So that that's, you know, still going back into the craft of software design. You have to kind of, you want to make those sort of choices. But for the underlying intrinsics, we just want to make that bottom part so you're no longer spending time trying to figure out what inline assembler you want to write, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, those days are hopefully long gone. Those days are gone forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes, they are. Yes, I've done plenty of that stuff in my lifetime, as you can imagine, and I I, I don't miss some of it. So, you know, if you don't have to do it, don't. Yeah, obviously, uh, the one of the hugest features for me of .NET four five is await async, and I I think I just think that's a huge game changer. So, thank you. <laughs> yes, no, I mean it really does match the programming paradigm that we want, um, you know, because we want to make this this kind of ability to asynchronous programming so much simpler. And I think the part that's so great, and, the, and this, of course, you know, is kind of the brilliance of Anders Heilsberg, right? I mean, he's, he, he's, he's a rare kind of software designer that doesn't, you know, since that old saying, doesn't, is, doesn't, is not done until there's nothing left to take out. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like simplicity, elegance, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's, it's so nice when we saw the original demos to be able to look between here's code that absolutely does what you want. And here's what it would look like if we're actually, you know, elegant and written properly. And that to me is a lot of what the async and async pattern does. And it so matches our modern environment, you know, with the kind of loosely coupled internet standards, the, you know, those sorts of things. It's a, it's a, I think it's a good time to have this kind of innovation coming out. And he's really distilled it down to just the minimum we need to make it happen. But isn't async like a requirement working in Metro mode now? Like you're not allowed to be synchronous anywhere. Yeah, and that's a little bit more stemming from like so. For example, if you're if you're programming a lot in browser code and in, in JavaScript, you'll see the same sort of thing, right? I mean, making asynchronous calls and being able to do the handle events uh, in that kind of environment where latency is sometimes not predictable, but you want uh, you know kind of an interactive sort of thing. It, it is a good programming model mm-hmm. uh, in order to have. Uh, the problem is by default it gets pretty complicated. Now you know there's different solutions, promises, and those sort of things are other sort of environments on. How to go program against it. jQuery's obviously made that, you know, style of programming and, you know, in that space very popular. Uh, I think our async stuff in .NET, you know, is a fantastic way to write that kind of code. Um, so I think, you know, making that an easy and approachable thing um, so that you can construct code that's easy to read, it's uh, easy enough to go write, but it has the attributes that it can actually be responsive. You know, that, that is kind of our modern, you know, programming techniques we have here. We're in the 21st century. You know what I mean? You, that, that's kind of what you want. Is the architecture of promises in JavaScript, which is the equivalent, I suppose, but is that radically different from uh, Away Async? 
Well, I mean, some of it's kind of more of a flavor sort of thing, right? I mean, yeah. if you do the JavaScript piece, uh, it's almost like an inline contract that you start to expand. I mean, of course, there's, there's multiple patterns people have, so I'm overgeneralizing here, but, you know, there's this whole pattern of here's the request and, you know, here's what to do on an error, here's what to do on complete, um, that kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it can it can really get a, it's almost like a coding contract where I can say here's all the states and what it kind of looks like together, and it flows in a way that you, you spend less time worrying about doing a lot of stitching between things. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a, an approach, and it happens to be you know part of the way that we went in to design WinJS and make that part you know kind of have that because we felt it was a good modern, it was a you know understandable, especially by the audience that you're targeting in that case. I think in in the case of async, uh, the wait keywords, those sorts of things, that's a perfect for the .NET environment. You know where we're we understand delegates, kind of understand you know lambdas, calling sequences, you know all the intrinsics that we've been introducing in the core for a long time. Here's an elegant way to pull those together plus task scheduling you know and and here's a nice package and a nice easy to understand way to express that same level of so code. the promise is just the javascript way and you find that javascript programmers are comfortable with that with that contract model yeah, that's that's a pretty common model that has evolved the last several the last several years, right? I mean, a lot of the big JavaScript frameworks, you know, especially if you start looking at uh, again, I'm overgeneralizing the terms because there's so many yeah. little variants and that kind of stuff. But if you look through, like if you're doing jQuery programming, for example, you know, very common way to to go through and go do that, have your code together, you know, be able to pull it apart. Of course, these are all just using the underlying languages and intrinsics to give you a style of programming. You can always go down and do precisely what. You know, kind of required underneath on the runtime. Same thing for the CLR. You know, I can break everything out and write it explicitly if that's what I need to do. But to me, the advantages of these techniques is getting some big brains. You know, to kind of think about what are the nice programs, uh, you know, techniques, the common patterns you're going to go after. How could I actually compose these in a way that's easy for the reader, easy for for people to be able to write? It's approachable. You know, that 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 really is what we ask our best language designers and framework designers. That that's kind of a big part of your job is, you know, make that stuff approachable while still being efficient and proper and well-architected. So, Carl? Yeah, Richard? You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component1. Smarter components for smarter developers. So is there a big list of things that you wanted to do in .NET 4.5 and in, uh, in the, in this Metro version that, that didn't make the cut? You know, things that you wanted to add to the Windows runtime, for example? Uh, you know, there, there always is. Anytime you do, uh, you know, major version of that, you know, I've worked on CLR 1, 1, 1, 2, 3, yeah. you know, now on 4, 4, 5. I mean, there, there's always a set of things that you want to do. Um, and we've always got a backlog that's there. Uh, my experience in all these sorts of things has, has told me, though, that the best thing you need to do is you have to figure out, you know, like I, I always try and put myself in the shoes of somebody trying to really accomplish a particular task. Right, I want to build a killer metro application of this type. Here's an example, like a game or a data snacking app like the Stocks app or a newsreader. Take your pick. What would I really need in order to absolutely accomplish that? Like what's the, what's the minimum viable, you know, piece that I could have that would really make that pay off? And by the way, works very well through the entire chain. So it's awesome if you have a fantastic edit compile debug loop, but if I can't actually ever deploy it well to the store, you fail. Right, so it, it's, mm. it's more approaching it that way. What's the horizontal experience that has to be there? What's really going to make that a, a really great and fantastic experience? Let's get that right. Let's get that out there for people and get them started. And of course, we do a little more than just the minimal piece. Sure. But then there's always something else that's right behind it. Wow, if I just had this, it'd be that much easier. Uh, but I've also found that you know, getting it out there for people to actually use is the best experience. And what will happen is I may have ten things that I think are super important, and when my users get a hold. Of it, they'll come back and give me, you know, like seven of those were probably interesting. Here's three that you missed. 
And, you know, that's a much better way to kind of start pulling it forward. So we will do that. This won't be obviously our last release. So what's um, on that list? Oh, all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, I, I hesitate since we're just shipping the product to, to start saying, like, it's not there yet. But <laughs> you know right. Don't Osborne um, yourself. Yeah, that's true. You don't want you know, to Osborne you know what I'm yourself. Because it is a really fantastic release. But what I can say is, like, you know, like what will we continue to want to do? Well, I, you know, let me give you some examples. Uh, we're doing some really good stuff uh, with respect to doing a lot of uh, more advanced testing. So we have added some great testing support in for, say, Windows 8. We already have it for the browser and that kind of stuff. Uh, there's cases where we haven't uh, brought all of our testing tools online for that, uh, but there's more that we can do. So we'll add those things in there. And we're always looking for ways to, you know, help you with your performance and help you with debugging. And every release, we want to have a good set of, you know, big contributions that, you know, move the state of the art because, uh, you know, I want to I want to have the best debugger out there, period. You know, those are the sorts of things we always continue to just invest in. I got to think that parallelism still has a ways to go. I mean, I love async await, but the architecture underpinning our machines today compared to say, you know, 2001 when .NET was bright and new is so radically different. Yes, and that's I will tell you this is one of the longest design, you know, conversations or, or design challenges we've always had. Um I'll take I'll give you an old school one just to demonstrate this, uh memory models. Um, we spent a bunch of time in the CLR debating memory models because we did run on chips that had out of order, you know, execution. And if you are an exceptionally skilled programmer, you can actually take advantage of the architecture of the chip, you know, read before write and other sort of ordering things, and you can write some exceptionally, you know, highly performant code. Uh, and my experience is there's very few people that actually get that right. Yeah, it's like ha- handing somebody a positron, kind of, you know, like, hey, go have fun with this. <laughs> uh, don't blow up the house. You know, it's like, uh, yeah. whoa, you know. <laughs> yeah, we've been using this line on the show for a while now. Microsoft, it's yes, your foot. Yeah, it's your foot. It's your foot. Thank you, Kate Gregory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. Yeah. So I mean, like, so, so you have that. Um, so that some of the trade-offs then we start making though are okay, but is that actually approachable? And even though it's a very powerful tool, is it the one that's actually required in most cases? And so we have made design decisions where we've actually purposefully not taking advantage of some of those sort of techniques because, you know, uh, we want to actually make it approachable and we want to make it actually execute, you know, in, in a particular way. And then we'll usually still allow you some way that it, hey, if it is your foot. So if you want to go do that, uh, that's, that's still kind of a great place for something like C++, for example, where you can do anything you want. You can, you know, do exactly what you want. Um, you know, and this is kind of the challenge of inventing frameworks and programming languages, how to get that mix kind of right, because not every person that is going to use your tools is going to be in the same spot or going to have the same desires or needs. And it, yeah, but this is just going to keep shifting forward. But it's also, you know, we get into this really complex area of app design and it's just the way that apps start to shape. I'm wondering if F-sharp is supposed to leap into this space because we really haven't talked about changes in F-sharp. You know, 2010 was really V1. Yeah. Yeah, and so and we've and we've got you know new versions and improvements going in with 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 F sharp. I mean, th- but this one to me actually also helps illustrate, you know, how a gener a general tool like Visual Studio. One of the challenges we have, uh, we have every everywhere from uh, people that are you know uh, writing uh, business style applications, forms over data, you know that sort of stuff, and where their their business model is like if I'm a consultant, it's more about getting the project done for the client fast and, and making sure it's reliable. It may not be that every project I do is super complicated. That's uh, an end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum we have is we've got actual rocket scientists, like real rocket scientists. Yeah. Huh? You know, people that write software for, you know... Rockets. For rockets. Machines. (laughs) They can't fail. And they can't fail, and you and you got to do those things right. And you know the the it's it's remarkable. It's it's and it's, it's neither of those is an invalid scenario. They're totally valid. But it's amazing how much the requirements and the technology shift between those two, and it's a spectrum completely in between. And so we do try and create you know underlying technologies like our debuggers, profilers, those sorts of things that can handle it for everybody. We want the language to be approachable, and in some cases we may go do some really advanced stuff in either direction. Uh, the forms over data one, light switch is a good example. That was a, look, we want to make that, you know, if your goal is to get it done as fast as possible, but still with high quality on top of great components, that's a light switch. On the other end, if you're a quant trying to figure out, 
you know, exactly when I should expect, you know, turbines to fail in the field based on historical graphing data. Um, great, I can pull up F-sharp and start running some equations through there and plugging it through, and boom, there's my answer. Like, those are two ends of the spectrum, but, you know, we, we, we kind of want to have the spread. I mean, this is the big challenge with Studio. He's trying to make it approachable for the hobbyist who just wants to write a little code and still, I mean, you guys use this thing internally for some of your biggest products as, as well as many other folks do. Like, it's kind of nuts to try and make one product do all these things. What are you people thinking? <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of practice and you, you can send me feedback and tell me how well we're doing. Um, but yeah, we do try and make it approachable. And, you know, part of what we do is, we do try and provide, you know, a core in a, in a kind of consistent way. Like I said, part of the value proposition I have is that, you know, as a developer, I develop skill sets with this tool and the languages when new environments, new platforms, new opportunities come along, like the cloud, like, you know, online SharePoint now, like Windows. I want you to feel like I'm not lost there. You know, my skill sets are going to work. So that's the core part of what we try and do. And then we've also, we spend a lot of time on usability, uh, trying to make sure that we don't overwhelm people. And so, you know, because we have some really advanced stuff. If I were to enable every view that was possible, you might feel like, oh, my goodness, this is a lot to absorb at once. It's overwhelming. Uh, it can be overwhelming. So we try and be careful about that. And that was actually mm-hmm. another part of the UX simplification was to actually reduce the amount of stuff in your face when you're using the product to get going. Uh, and then the final thing I'd say is we invested very heavily in extensibility. Um, so you can write your own plugins. We, of course, have some great partners we love that also you know, have you know, first-class, very popular plugins. But that also allows people to come along. Uh, the Windows team internally, for example, has a significant number of uh, features that they have for just internal engineering use that plug right into Visual Studio, uh, give them access to all sorts of internal systems. And even the kernel guys uh, added a bunch of new stuff to help them do uh, uh, driver development in kernel nice. mode. Wow. Uh, you know, I mean, and that's probably not something that our average uh, enterprise business programmer, they don't need that, but the extensibility means that the team that does can install it and use it, and it's a great tool for them. So it's, it's adaptable is the way to think of it. What's the, what's the cloud story in terms, I don't mean building apps for the cloud, but Visual Studio in the cloud? Uh, so a couple different things. One, we have Team Foundation Service. And, of course, uh, we've been slowly but surely uh, bringing a whole bunch of stuff online. Uh, it's at tfspreview.com if people want to try it out. There's no invitation codes anymore. Uh, love that thing. Uh, it gives me source control, work items. I can do Scrum, task boards, backlog, all that kind of stuff. And we also have the ability to build, uh, which you just create a build definition and tell it the build controller is the cloud version and it just runs in Azure. Um, that's pretty awesome. Cause yeah. With that, plus some of the support that we have for websites in the June release of Azure, we can actually enable you to use all that system to do continuous integration and continuous deployment of websites, uh, which is a great sort of start. The other one that's interesting from a cloud perspective, uh, if people saw it, uh, we announced the NAPA tools. That's a code name, NAPA, uh, which is essentially browser-based development for SharePoint. And so I can create new SharePoint applications, JavaScript, HTML, that kind of stuff. And it's actually a SharePoint application that you install to run. Uh, and that one's also out there now. So it's got a brand new editor uh, and all sorts of things in there. So from a development kind of perspective, um, I would say you're seeing us do a bunch of stuff uh, along these lines. Uh, and uh, uh, it's a teaser. It's just the beginning. Wow. So, Jason, going forward, is this model of the really tight coupling between Studio and Windows going to be the norm? We expect this every time now? Well, I guess what I would say is um, th- think about what we do. Um, the, the, my general plan when we, when we ship Visual Studio, we have a major version of Visual Studio that we ship. It's where we put a bunch of our core functionality, you know, like a, like a new debugger or shell changes or those sorts of things. And we need a kind of interval to be able to go do that. Um, before and after that sort of a date when those go through, we have tons of platforms coming out from Microsoft. Mm-hmm. So we've got, you know, new versions of phone, SharePoint, Azure, you know, you, you, you name it. The fall of 2012 is like the season of ship. It's out of control. Yes. It is, but if you remember, I actually wound up shipping with 2010, Visual Studio 2010. We actually shipped support for SharePoint, um, the, the version of SharePoint that came out in mm-hmm. 2010 as well. Uh, it turned out that year those two happened to be pretty well aligned, so we just actually shipped the SharePoint tools in the box. 
Uh, this year we're not quite in the same alignment, which means that um, you get Visual Studio, but again, the tools that we produce, um, they actually just plug right into the latest version of Visual Studio. So mm. uh, this, is, this is kind of a long way of saying I've always got out-of-band platform releases that are shipping, and they will go on top of you the current version of Visual Studio that I'm already working on if the timing is right, or we'll release them as plugins for either the previous version or you get them after I ship. So right. there's always that combination. Um, with Windows, uh, in this particular release, uh, just given the amount of brand new innovation associated with the new version of Windows, the, the kind of, uh, you know, the Windows RT, the, win, uh, the, the runtime there, all that kind of stuff, uh, we absolutely had to be in sync with each other. Uh, there's just no way to pull off that level of change and new functionality without doing that. Right. Um, so is that something we're always going to do? No, there's, there's no general rule that says we always are going to do that. Um, you know, but, but in general, if our, if our dates, you know, line up and that kind of stuff, we'll likely do that. Um, but any Visual Studio user should expect when a new Microsoft platform comes out and you want to develop for it, we will have tools that go with that. One more question, Jason. What can we expect at Build? Excellent question. You'll have to buy a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well played, there's, sir. There's a, there's a ton of new innovation. We got a ton of stuff, and I, you know, there, there will always be more and cool stuff. But uh, as you said, this is going to be an amazing wave of products from Microsoft, from all yeah. the big teams, all the big products. Uh, there's just there's just so much there. Uh, you know what I mean? There's a, with that much innovation, it's going to take a while to kind of chew through it and wrap your head around it. I think. So newer, new stuff, more stuff at Build. Let's leave it at that. And Jason Zander, thank you very much for spending this hour plus with us, and uh, come back anytime. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a